According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 1 as we continue our Life of Christ series this morning. We have two final items to look at in the uh, Song of Mary, and then we will proceed on to the uh, Song of Zacharias. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for the blessings you poured out upon us, for the ladies' prayer meeting this morning, and the blessings of having uh, Joanna with us this morning, and the, the, the delight there. We're also asking for your hand of protection upon Shirley as she is on the highway as we speak. Give traveling mercies, safety, and protection, and we look forward to seeing the Sands children when they return here to Austin. We just thank you for all your abundant life, blessings poured out upon us day by day, the mercies that are renewed. Just thank you again for the truth of your word and how we need it so very much on a day-by-day basis. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, Luke chapter 1 this morning. As we examine Mary's song of praise, we observe the Old Testament foundation that it reflected. And in the process of examining the Old Testament foundation, we observed a total of ten different areas where the Old Testament foundation is reflected in the words that Mary used, in the uh, truth that is communicated. Keeping in mind that this is, on the human side of things, this is Mary as the author of this song and the composer of this truth, reflecting the understanding of her soul in terms of the doctrine that she has in residency. But at the same time, we also want to observe that this is recorded scripture and so it's not just Mary composing a song but it is in fact God the Holy Spirit because no scripture is of its own private interpretation and no one spoke of their own initiative but uh, the holy men of old it says spoke as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance and so I think we examine both sides of that to uh, to my satisfaction at least in the course of this we ran out of time last week with really two more yet remaining Uh, So, just very rapidly, if you want to review your notes, under point A, we examine the pairing of soul and spirit. Under point B, we examine God, the personal Savior, not just the corporate Savior, not just the Savior of the world, but on a personal basis. He is my Savior. As Mary's song begins, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. It becomes very personal when you are able to personalize the gospel message. Point C was God's observance and vindication of faithful servants. Uh, Notice in verse 48, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. He does observe our circumstances. He does reward faithfulness. But at the same time that we recognize that, we also want to understand the nature of grace and the nature of God's being in his activity. He is not under any obligation to do so. He does not reward us because he has to do so. He rewards us and he blesses us because he wants to do so as an expression of his love, as a function of his grace. And I think we made that clear as well when we went to Psalm 18 and we saw David's Um, expression of that there. Under point D, we have the principle of God, the Mighty One. Spent some time talking about El Shaddai, El Elyon, the concepts of God Almighty from the Hebrew Old Testament that were not just the revealed names of God to Israel, but the revealed names of God to all humanity. 
Holy is his name we looked at from whoops. Holy is his name we looked at from Luke one forty nine related back to Psalm one eleven. Point F God's generational faithfulness. From now on all generations will um, count me blessed, and then verse fifty uh, his mercy is upon generation after generation. Realizing that part of our responsibility ourselves is not only to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and prepare ourselves to face our eternal judgment at the judgment seat and face our eternal reward for uh, all eternity, but then to prepare the generation after us or to prepare the generation of the generation after us. See, as Paul encouraged Timothy to teach faithful men who themselves would be able to teach others also, and there are four generations that are present there in that Second Timothy passage that shows us the responsibility to pass on the uh, faith which has once and for all been delivered unto all the saints. God's generational faithfulness becomes then very important. Under point G, we observe God's opposition to the proud and his grace to the humble. In fact, that is an issue that is fundamental to all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike. The responsibility we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and allow him to exalt us at the proper time. God's victory in the angelic conflict. And I think the reason why we ran out of time was because I spent a little bit more on this concept than I had originally intended or thought that we would. Uh, I believe in verses 51 through 53 that we have to widen our horizons a bit when we start to examine the things that he has done. It says in verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now certainly that applies to the human realm. And we can find instances of proud human beings, kings and, and uh, other sorts, likewise, that have been brought low. But we also want to understand that he is operating beyond simply the human realm, but he's also functioning in the angelic realm as well. Places like Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Revelation, there are places in the Bible that help us to observe that the human realm of creation is functioning according to the plan of God, right alongside or in parallel with the angelic realm of creation that's functioning under the plan of God. All things being brought from the Alpha to the Omega for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And so when it says he's done mighty deeds, we recognize that he's done so in the human realm and the angelic realm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, both in the human realm and the angelic realm. In fact, beginning with the angelic realm. The fall of Satan and all of the activity there actually preceding the creation of the human realm in Adam. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble, recognizing, yes, this applies in the human realm, but it also applies certainly in the angelic realm. And one of the vocabulary terms we dealt with recently in our introduction to angelic studies was, in fact, the term rulers. Principalities and powers, rulers and authorities are angelic references. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich, empty Handed. Relating back to a number of the Davidic Psalms, a number of the Messianic Psalms, when there are references to such things, it's quite remarkable how uh, the angelic realm comes up here as well, which we observe in Psalm 89. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. God is not only worthy to be praised by us here on earth, in our residences, in our dwelling places, in our local assemblies, but likewise in the heavenlies, the assembly of the holy ones in the heavenlies. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like 
the Lord. All of this in uh, the context of angelic reference to uh, the, the victory that the Lord has. As we glance on down, it says, A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of his holy ones. That's Psalm 89.7. And awesome above all those who are around him. Remember one of the introductions of Gabriel. He was Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. He is therefore one of the subjects of this verse here. A holy one in the presence of the Lord. Awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who was slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And uh, if somehow you get it in your head that he's talking about the, the harlot of Jericho there, uh, you have a very limited view to Rahab and the concept of angelic conflict, which is presented in this particular psalm especially. All right, Mary also had a handle on two final areas, and we want to look at these this morning before we press on to cover the Song of Zacharias. God's servant Israel, under point I, which we observe in Luke one fifty four. And then the Abrahamic covenant, which we observe in Luke 1.55. And since Mary has a handle on these, I want to make sure that we have a handle on these as well. All right, just again to read very quickly here from Luke 1, the conclusion to Mary's song. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The servanthood of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant are really linked together, two sides of the same coin, we might say. All right, to Israel his servant. Let's keep in mind, of course, that we have a servant relationship with the Lord as well, but we are servants of something else altogether. As a matter of fact, Second Corinthians says that we are servants or ministers of a new covenant, and the relationship we have as the bride to Christ, being in Christ, becomes quite extraordinary in that regard. But Israel was likewise his servant, but his servant as an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. That is, the one earthly nation that was set apart, that was called apart to be holy, that was sanctified for the Father's purpose in order to extend blessings to all the other nations of the earth, that being the Gentile nations of the earth. So as we see these concepts played out in Isaiah, you can turn with me to Isaiah 41, I think you will understand one of the prime differences between Israel and the church that is so very important to keep in view. One of the blessings we have in terms of our hermeneutical principle in that we we read the Bible for what it says and we believe it when it says it. That we accept the plain language of Scripture. And we can read about Israel and we can recognize that God has called them and God has a purpose for them. And we can read about the church and we realize that God has called us and has a purpose for us. And because we read in plain language, we understand that Israel is not the church. That Israel's purposes are different from the church's purposes. Both of which have eternal purposes. Therefore, um, the one cannot replace the other. All right? If, if I can just be blunt and simple, if, if the church replaces Israel, then Israel never had eternal purposes. Israel only had temporary purposes. Or they had conditional purposes that could then be overruled. But we recognize that God's promises to Abraham and God's promises to David were unconditional and they were eternal. 
Therefore, they can't be replaced. They can't be superseded. God cannot look upon Israel and say, well, you're a miserable bunch of failures. I'm going to scrap my whole plan for Israel, and now I'm going to introduce the church, and you've just been replaced. All right? And now I'm going to work through the church. Can't do that. All right? This is what's called replacement theology, and it is as evil as you can imagine. The people don't think it through, and people don't understand how evil it truly is. Because... They're based upon unconditional promises by God. I will, the language of I will to Abraham and the language of I will to David. And if he's going to scrap that whole thing and start over with the church, then God's a liar. And he lied to Abraham and he lied to David. And we have the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture that tells us he cannot lie to David and will not lie to David. Those plans and programs are still in effect, even if they are, for the moment, on hold. Even if for the present time there is a partial hardening of Israel and for the season, that is, the church is being composed, he will return to his plan for Israel and it will be put into effect. And I think we understand that. We have the greatest advantage of being able to incorporate Israelology and ecclesiology into our, into our theology because we accept the plain language of Scripture. So, all of that being said, in Isaiah 41... I want you to observe this. It begins with coastlands. Listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Now God, of course, although he has set apart Israel as his earthly nation, that doesn't mean that he's abandoning everybody else on the earth. Gentiles can still get saved. He's got plans for Gentiles. He's got plans for Gentile nations. Remarkably enough, Ammon and Moab are going to be blessed in the Millennial Kingdom in spite of the evil of those nations in Old Testament times. Egypt, Assyria will be center places of worship in the Millennial Kingdom in spite of the great evil of those nations in Old Testament times. All right, God still has plans for the Gentiles, blessings for the Gentiles, blessings for the sons of Adam as the son of man is has federal headship over them as well. Keep in mind, he's not only the son of David with relationship to his rule over Israel, he's also the son of man with relationship to his rule over the Adamic race. And uh, I think sometimes that gets overlooked. <clears throat> but as we glance down here, the uh, verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant. All right, he's been talking about coastlands. He's talking about nations, talking about the ends of the earth, different neighbors and so forth in verses 1 through 7. But now he draws his focus back to Israel in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. Descendant of Abraham, my friend. Unique title here for Abraham, the friend of God. What a blessing. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, as I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. It's evil for the church today to view Israel as being rejected. Israel is chosen. Israel has eternal promises and God has to be faithful to those promises because if God can lie to Israel, that means he can lie to us. <laughs> I can't overstate this this morning. If God can lie to Israel, then we aren't saved. <laughs> because our salvation is grounded upon the faithfulness and the promises of God. And if he can change his mind about Israel and decide to scrap that whole thing, then what's to keep him from changing his mind about the bride, about the church, about our salvation, and scrapping that whole thing? When he looks down at the church and says, boy, you guys are a bunch of miserable, rotten failures. All right? 
You see why it's vital that we don't become replacement uh, theologians in our thinking in terms of Israel being set aside. Do not fear, I am with you, it says in verse 10. But we have the relationship of Israel as God's servant in relationship to the other nations of this earth. To the other nations of this earth. All right? Very important to keep that in mind. Now, over in chapter 44, we have it again. But now listen, O O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. We've seen uh, last week and this week both now the the nature of Hebrew poetry to restate things twice. To say the same thing again a second time in a different way. Such as referring to Jacob and Israel in parallel. The reference is the same. The reference is to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Uh, Jacob was in fact renamed Israel. We studied that in our Life of Jacob series way back when. But you will also notice the nature of servant and the nature of chosen. We had it in chapter 41. We have it here. We have it for us in the church. We are servants of God, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because by grace he elected us, by grace he chose us, by grace he saved us, and here we are. What a blessing we have. So it's described in verse 1. It's also down in verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. See, the forgiveness and service of Israel has never been fully realized at any point in their past. And it's going to take the great tribulation of Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble, in order to humble them, in order to prepare them, really in order to bring about their repentance and preparedness to serve as the servant nation upon this earth, which they will be in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's why it says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. And so much of this is still yet looking forward to the tribulational return and then therefore the second advent blessings that are incorporated when Christ establishes his throne. Finally, in the next chapter down in Isaiah 45, verse 4, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. And that's just to clip a very half of one verse there to identify again the nature of the servant nation. Specifically, it's quite interesting, in in chapter 45, God by name is referring prophetically to Cyrus, his anointed, to Cyrus the Persian, before even the Babylonian realm comes along to displace the Assyrian realm. It's really extraordinary here. And he's called his anointed, his Christ, his anointed one. And Cyrus, the Gentile king, is used uh, to accomplish the Lord's blessings upon his people, even in their divine discipline. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the chosen tool to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, carry the people in captivity. And because of Daniel, was led to Christ and became a believer. But now Cyrus is also God's chosen one, a Gentile king who becomes saved, I believe again through Daniel, becomes saved, and but he is the source of blessing that permits the return of the exiles from captivity. He issues the decree for Israel to return, for the temple to be rebuilt, for the Jewish people to be restored to their land. Cyrus is an amazing type of Christ, even as a Gentile king. 
the end of chapter 44 there in verse 28, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. What a picture of Christ. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who accomplishes all of the Father's perfect desire. And he declares of Jerusalem she will be rebuilt. And of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken from my right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. Some of this will come up again as we focus on John the Baptist and his ministry as the forerunner, the one who goes before the coming of the Christ. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that I may know that it is, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, that's Jehovah, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. And the whole reason why Cyrus is going to be exalted and magnified and glorified is because Cyrus will be the tool of God's blessing upon Israel, his servant, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I, am, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In any event, Isaiah 45 takes a lot of work. I would love if the Lord delays long enough to let me teach the book of Isaiah at some point. But uh not sure how that would go. <laughs> if uh, 1 Corinthians is a five-year study, I, Isaiah would have to be about 30 years, I would imagine, to really give it in the depth that I would love to give it. You teach the whole Bible from the book of Isaiah. But God's servant Israel, and Mary had a handle on that, is expressed in Luke 1, 54. The nature of the Abrahamic covenant expressed in Luke 1, 55. Mary had a handle on that as well. We need to make sure that we do as well. So join me in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. One of the things we try to do when we do a walkthrough is we try to uh, highlight the uh, early chapters of Genesis leading up to the Abrahamic covenant and how chapters 1 through 11 prepare for chapter 12, and then how chapter 12 is explained in the rest of the Bible. Alright, and this is something that we may end up doing in uh, setting up a brand new church, for example. If there's a group that wants to start, call a pastor and start a church, these are the kind of things that we might do in order to start some home Bible studies, in order to do some outreach, give the gospel, and that sort of thing. But we work our way through the chapters and the walkthrough. We work our way through the introduction to the book of Genesis. And we show how there's uh, uh, 2,000 years in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. And then all of a sudden we come to a screeching halt with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And we go through the chapter titles and we, we put people into, a, into a, uh, a big picture way of thinking. And then we get into chapter 12 and everything then stops. The, the huge 2,000-year roller coaster all of a sudden stops. And as a matter of fact, the, rest, the whole rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 12 to Malachi is the next 2,000 years, all right, from Abraham to Christ. So it's really something else when you examine these early chapters of Genesis and you work your way through the, uh, you work your way through the walkthrough. Now, in chapter 12, God calls Abraham, still called Abram at this point, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. All right, we have land promises. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. 
He's going to be made a great nation. He's going to have descendants. This is the promise of seed. There are land promises. There is seed promise. Then verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just Israel, not just the Jewish people, but all the Gentiles, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we have land, seed, and blessing. The three arms of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And if you learn nothing else about the Abrahamic covenant, you can at least learn land, seed, and blessing. All right? As uh, we have it described here in Genesis 12, the covenant will likewise be amplified a little bit in chapter 15. It will be expanded a little bit in chapter 17. It's going to get confirmed to Isaac in chapter 24. It's going to get confirmed to uh, Jacob in chapter 28. But the Abrahamic covenant confirmed to Isaac, reconfirmed to Jacob, becomes then the covenant to Israel. That is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel becomes the servant nation. But remember, in verse 3 here, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By means of the Abrahamic covenant, the entire human race receives blessing. As I said, it's expanded a little bit here in Genesis chapter 17. If you want to turn over to there. Significantly, it is re-promised once again after Abraham and Sarah tried uh, their own little human effort means to help God fulfill his promises. Remember, when God makes promises, he doesn't need you or me to, to help him along. He doesn't need us to come along and try to try to provide even 1% of the work. Even a 99%, 1% breakdown, that's not God's plan and program. God does 100% of the work. Doesn't need our help whatsoever. When Jesus Christ on the cross said, it is finished, it is finished. Doesn't need human help whatsoever. We don't need to add sacraments. We don't need to add repentance. We don't need to add penance or any other such thing. Forgiveness of sin has been achieved by the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here again, God makes promises of land, seed, and blessing. And Abraham moves to the land and he's not having any seed. There's no kids coming along. And so Sarah comes up with this plan and says, here, you can have my concubine, you can have my maid as your concubine. And wow, look at that. A baby came along. Isn't that wonderful? No, it's not wonderful. You're just setting yourself up for future divine discipline because that's human effort and God never honors human effort. By faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abraham and Sarah conceived and that happens in chapter 18. But now in chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Here's El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. There's no ifs in here. It's not if you obey me, if you walk with me. It's just walk with me. That's an order because this is what I am going to do. I will. Unconditional covenant language of I will. As for me, behold, verse 4, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. And that is beyond the human effort thing that already happened with Ishmael. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. We talk about the two boys, Isaac and Ishmael, both coming from Abraham. That's not true. Ishmael was born to Abram. Isaac was born to Abraham. And I find that to be extraordinary. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. All right? How long is that? Trick question. <laughs> How long is eternal? It's forever. And so that's quite interesting. You know, um, Abraham falls on his face here. He renames Sarai in verse 15, Sarah. And I uh, will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said no. Ishmael's human effort. Ishmael's not the son of promise. Ishmael was not born by faith. And uh, you're going to give birth to laughter here. And uh, it's through him that grace is going to be made known. So the Abrahamic covenant becomes very important. I want you to see the, uh, the things here. The one chapter I did not give you was chapter 15. And... Uh, that should probably be included in between chapter 12 and chapter 17. Because it's in chapter 15 that he takes them out and he shows them the stars of the heaven. And uh, when they cut the, uh, cut the heifer in half and, and uh, God himself passes between the covenants. So just join me there in chapter 15. Verse 9, he, as the Lord says to Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut, cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. All right? And this was how the contracts were ratified, how the covenants were ratified in the ancient world. And he cut these animals in part here on the left, here on the right, and the parties making the covenant would walk between the, the pieces together. It's a way, it's a, the way of uh, verbalizing and and uh, and physically demonstrating your faithfulness to a promise, agreeing that if you violate the contract, that you'd be willing to be ripped apart like the uh, like the offerings you were walking in between. See, very vivid way of expressing your your promise or your intention to fulfill a covenant. And it's interesting, as as this was all set up, then Abraham was driven into a deep sleep. And uh, God gives him more promises specifically with relationship to the slavery that they would have in Egypt. But then in verse 17, it came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Abraham did not walk between the pieces, but God did. And I believe this is father and son represented by the smoking oven and the flaming torch. But all the obligations in the Abrahamic covenant are entirely on God's part. There are no obligations on Adam's, on Abraham's part whatsoever. It's an unconditional covenant every step of the way. So, we want to have a handle on that. The three elements of the Abrahamic covenant are what? Land, seed, blessing. There you go. So that's the kind of thing we do in a walkthrough. We'll take you through the 11 chapters of Genesis. We'll take you to the Abrahamic covenant. We'll remind you about land, seed, and blessing a hundred times. We'll show you the, the ways that land, seed, and blessing gets uh, expanded as the, the land portion is further amplified in the, in the Palestinian covenant, as the, the seed portion is further expanded in the Davidic covenant, pointing ahead to the glorious seed, the son of David, that will come and redeem humanity. And then the blessing aspect of land, seed, and blessing is amplified 
in the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, 31 and the, the glorious promises of forgiveness of sin and the, and the blessings of the new nature there. In any event, these are the things that Mary expresses in her song. Now, moving on to Zacharias, who gets to give the finale, as it were, if uh, Elizabeth and Mary were the opening acts in this concert. Zacharias, <laughs> I call Zach in my uh, final name. I just thought it was shorter. I hope he forgives me. Verses 57 through 80. The birth of John the Baptist and his father's song. Remembering that Mary stayed with her for about three months. She got there in the sixth month. The indication is that she stayed through the length of the pregnancy, observed the birth, and then returned to her home. Verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. How about that? Just like the angel said. That was even before sonograms. How did he know? All right. The angel said, you're going to have a son. And lo and behold, there he is. Verse 58, her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her and they were rejoicing with her. Again, we don't know how old Anna was, but she was, or not Anna, but Elizabeth. We don't know how old Elizabeth was, but she was old enough that it was obvious to everybody that she was not going to have children. She and Zacharias have been married 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, however long they've been married, 60 years. And uh, babies hadn't come along yet. It becomes pretty obvious that uh, it's not going to happen. All right. But the angel shows up and says it is going to happen. And it does. Undeniable work of God on their behalf. And it happened on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Now it's interesting, they being um, her neighbors and her relatives. The subject of the verb being expressed in verse 58. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. It's quite interesting. Who's in charge of naming babies anyway? <laughs> you know? If, if, if you and your wife are having a baby, uh, you know, you, is it your neighbors and your friends that come along and your relatives that say, Oh, by the way, his name's going to be uh, Mortimer. You know, <laughs> his name's going to be Fred. And you can get real indignant like Elizabeth and say, Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> We do not have, we just have trouble relating to the tribal family and clan circumstances of the nation of Israel. We have no concept for it. We, we on a limited basis, understand because we're in a federal republic of 50 sovereign states, at least we used to be, in a federal republic of 50 sovereign states, and so we can understand a federal arrangement Israel was a federal arrangement of 12 sovereign tribes. Each tribe broken down into clans and families, each with a, with a divine portion, with an, a land allotment and blessings that were granted unto them. And uh, the extended family and clan had a tremendous amount to say about what the names are going to be of these children. They're going to inherit the family's property, the clan's property, the clan's estates. Uh, who you're going to marry for example, being arranged by the family and the clan. In my mind, picking out names is, is really kind of minor when 
we stopped to realize that, well, they picked out the bride in the first place. <laughs> you know, I had to marry the girl they set me up with. So if, if, if I'm going to do that, then I guess they can name the baby too. Might as well. They controlled everything else that happened up till this point. All right. Having a little bit of fun with it this morning, but that's again because we're 21st century American Christians and we're separated by quite a bit of culture and quite a bit of time here. In any event, neighbors and family. Her neighbors, remember they're Levites and they're going to live in a Levitical city. They're going to live in a Levitical community. So the neighbors are, in fact, also relatives. And uh, But his mother said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There was no one among your relatives who was called by that name. We don't have any Levites. <laughs> There's no priests. There's no Johns around here. And they said to her, uh, I'm sorry, verse 62, and they made signs to his father. See, she evidently had put her foot down to such a point that there was just no use talking to her anymore. <laughs> so, well, okay, let's just go write notes now to Zacharias. And he's been speechless for the last six mo- last nine months. But since we're not getting anywhere with her, let's go ahead and start writing notes to him and see what if we can get him to put some sense into her head. All right? And... Um, He made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called, and he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is, not his name will be, his name is, because you remember that he has already been named. He has been named by the Lord in the promise and command that was given then by the angel. And because Zacharias doubted that angel, he's been under divine discipline for the last nine months. All right? Left speechless. I wonder how that has actually contributed towards their marriage. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if the husband was left speechless that whole length of time and, and Elizabeth had 100% monopoly, I, I, I don't know. That must have been a good thing for their marriage, I would expect. I'm not sure how that worked. But given that they've been married 60 years already, it probably meant that you know their marriage wasn't in trouble anyway. But things I ponder from time to time. Now, he answers back. There is um, his name is John. Not it's going to be or I want to name him. It is. Already is. Statement of being in present time. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. He concludes his divine discipline and and begins immediately to reap the advantage to take the opportunity to glorify God for what he had done. And fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judah. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord will certainly, I'm sorry, the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Already, present time, the hand of the Lord is with this brephos, with this infant, this newborn, right out of the womb. Remember, he's spirit-filled. A spirit-filled baby right out of the, right out of the womb. Let's get some points of study here. Zacharias and Elizabeth obeyed the Lord's instructions by naming their son John. Zacharias and Elizabeth obeyed the Lord's instructions by naming their son John. (laughs) I guess Zacharias would have been left speechless for the rest of his life if he would have insisted on Zacharias Jr. or whatever. You know, probably would have been struck dead. No, he he learned his lesson. He learned his divine discipline. His name is John. Already been named. It's not ours to do. It's his. His name is John. They obeyed the Lord's instructions. 
We have a wonderful example here of trust and obey. We have a pattern that's laid down for us to apply in trusting the Lord no matter how impossible his instructions seem to be. No matter how unbelievable it may appear. Now the contrast in these names is quite interesting. Subpoint A, Zacharias. In the Greek, Zacharias, Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-S. Names are the easiest of all the Greek vocabulary, Hebrew vocabulary, because for the most part, names aren't translated, they're just transliterated into the English. So you have Zeta, Alpha, Chi, Alpha, Rho, Iota, Alpha, Sigma. Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-S. Number 2197. Zacharias is not even a Greek name, it's really a Hebrew name brought over to the Greek language, as recorded in the New Testament. Comes from the Hebrew, Zechariah, which is where we get our English word Zechariah, like the prophet Zechariah. It means Yahweh remembers, Jehovah remembers. Quite a few of the uh, of the names in the Old Testament would have the uh, the 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 Yahweh or the Yah either at the end of the name or the beginning of the name. That's why we have so many names that do end with Ah for example, or begin with the Y sound. Um, so you have the, the ending Yah here, the verb Zakir, meaning to remember. And so Zakir Yah, Yahweh remembers. Jehovah remembers. If you ever want to have a fun time in the Old Testament and the New Testament, try to find all the Zechariahs in the Bible. Uh, the most complete listing I found listed a total of 32 different Zechariahs in Scripture. <laughs> most of whom, you know, only appear once or they're, they're listed in a genealogy somewhere. He's the father of so-and-so or the son of so-and-so and different things. The most prominent Zechariah is the author and prophet of the book of Zechariah. You know, uh, Haggai, Malachi, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All right, Zechariah, the second to last Old Testament book. Fourteen chapters long, tremendous prophetic book. It really kind of broke my heart that uh, that Glenn uh, Carnegie tried to teach us the book of Zechariah there in his final final years, we might say, because uh, it's, it's a powerful book. And I was eager to, to receive a lot of that information, and I found myself lamenting and wishing that we had a younger Glenn to, to teach us that book, because there's a powerful message in there. Along the lines of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel for... Uh, the uh, messianic information. All right, Zechariah. The Lord remembers. Yahweh remembers. All right, Yahweh remembers, and He's been remembering. He's been remembering for two thousand years. He made a covenant with Abraham, and He's been remembering it. He's been remembering it all through the generations. As a matter of fact, when Moses was faced with this test, um, Israel was being their typical stiff neck you know, obstinate self, and they were rebelling, you know, golden calf and doing all the lascivious stuff there. And and, uh, and the Lord says, all right, Moses, step back. I'm going to blast these people. I'm going to blast them to smithereens. I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to build a nation. And Moses passed the test. He said, Lord, you can't do that. He said, remember, you made promises to Abraham. Remember, you've made covenant promises. And in between Abraham and Moses, uh, part of those promises were even more amplified to point out the fact that Judah was going to be the ruling tribe among the 12 tribes. 
<laughs> so if God blasts everybody and starts over with Moses, then he can no longer have the scepter uh, belong to Judah. He can no longer fulfill the promises he made to Abraham and then made to, made to Judah in particular. So uh, Moses passed the test. He called upon the Lord. He said, no, remember the promises you made to Abraham. How many times in the book of Judges do they go through that cycle of rebellion and then repentance? And each time as God remembers the promises that he made to Abraham. So he's been remembering, he's been remembering, he's been remembering all down through the prophets all down through, even though Isaiah is uh, a prophet who's ministering and then the northern kingdom gets swept away, God was still remembering his Abrahamic promises. And even though Jeremiah is the prophet in the southern kingdom of, uh, in Jerusalem when, Israel, when Judah gets swept away, God's still remembering his promises. And you've got Daniel and you've got Ezekiel over there in the captivity. God's still remembering his promises to Abraham. And then Israel comes back into the land and you have Zechariah and you have Malachi and Haggai and God's still remembering his promises. And then 400 years of silence with no more writing prophets and from every indication no more speaking prophets but God is still remembering his promises. But now God is not only remembering his promises he's now actually starting to provide the grace and fulfill those promises. And that becomes a big difference. And so the, the herald, the forerunner, is not going to be called God remembers. He's going to be called God has supplied grace. And that's the nature of the name Yohanan. Yahweh has graced. Again, the Greek name Yohannes comes from the Hebrew Yohanan meaning Jehovah, has graced. In this case, the Yah is placed on the front instead of the back. And that's, uh, again, not uh, unusual. There's the Yod. And so there's the, the name for Yah, the name for uh, Yahweh. And then the verb Hanan, the verb, the, the verb for grace, to find favor in the eyes of the Lord, to supply grace, unmerited favor and blessing. So Ioannis is not truly a Greek name. It stems from the Hebrew. Ioannis, 2491 in the Strong's Index. For those of you that are still learning to read the Greek letters, that's a capital Iota, a capital I, an Omega. looks like a W, but it's the Omega. It's the long O. Alpha is the A. These V-looking things aren't Vs. Those are news, pronounced like N. E S. So it's I O A N N E S. I O A N N E S. But when you transliterate it, if the I starts the first of the word instead of an I, you make it a Y. So it's Y O A N N E S. Ioannis. The Greek name Ioannis. The Greek Ys become Js quite often as Greek comes through the Latin. So that's why our name John today has a J instead of a Y. All right? Interesting, though, in the uh, Irish, the Gaelic languages, it's still an I. The, the, the name Ian, for example, I-A-N, it's the same name. Uh, then Ivan in the Russian language, it's the same name as John in the English or uh, Ioannis in the Greek. Coming from the Hebrew, Yohanan. All right. 
31.10 in the, is the Hebrew index. So instead of God remembers, God remembers, he's been remembering for 2,000 years. But now it's Jehovah has graced. Now it's the herald of the, fore, uh, the forerunner of the Christ is coming forward proclaiming the grace that has been revealed. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. And his herald testifies to that even by his very name, yet in the womb, spirit-filled to fulfill this particular function. There are ten Johannans uh, in the Old Testament. I almost said Jonathan. That's a different name. Johannan. There are ten of them in the Old Testament. The most significant is uh, a rascal that appears in uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapters 40 through 43. He's got about four chapters where he appears in the book of Jeremiah. He's one of the elders in Jerusalem. He's a man of considerable influence. And he's... Uh, really one of the biggest reasons why um, the remnant was led down into Egypt to flee after they murdered the Babylonian governor and dies under divine discipline in Egypt. Not a good character. Alright, point C now. The conclusion of divine discipline afforded Zacharias the opportunity to praise God. The conclusion of divine discipline afforded Zacharias the opportunity to praise God. And I hope you get this principle and this concept here this morning, and I hope you also get it in our First Corinthians series, particularly when we start to teach the doctrine of divine discipline, or the doctrine of church discipline, I'm sorry. The application of church discipline. Because the principle is the same, under divine discipline or church discipline, or even parental discipline. Alright? That when it reaches its conclusion... When it has run its course, when it's done what it's supposed to do, it will have brought about repentance. And it will qualify the humble believer for further service. We are so condemning in our nature, and I think it's because we're born as condemned creatures. <laughs> and so fallen humanity is very condemnation-oriented. Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation now, therefore, to those who are in Christ Jesus. But to those who are not in Christ Jesus, I think it's 100% condemnation. That's our orientation, our thinking. And when we want to punish somebody, and we want to write them off, and we want to um, disqualify them from all future service. <laughs> we want to discipline them and say, never again. And yet, this is Zacharias' opportunity to serve the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to testify the Lord's faithfulness. And because he's learned these lessons, he's equipped to not only teach the classes, but to warn younger believers from making those same mistakes. Likewise with the man of incest that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians, he's supposed to be brought back into the church. Because the church discipline has accomplished its result. Sorrow has produced repentance. And if they don't end the discipline, and if they don't end shunning the man, it's going to turn into excessive sorrow, which crushes the spirit. And since the church discipline has accomplished its result, the sorrow has produced repentance, the man is now right with the Lord, that church needs to bring him back in. And he'll have an opportunity to praise the Lord. He'll have an opportunity to testify to forgiveness. 
he'll have an opportunity to talk to young men and warn them about the uh, dangers of, of uh, uh, promiscuity and all the other problems and things that are involved. <laughs> no accident that Solomon's writing Proverbs, warning young men about the dangers of promiscuity. See, I don't find that accidental at all. <laughs> Solomon, you think Solomon learned a few things in the process of his divine discipline? In any event, you'll notice that, that no sooner was his divine discipline complete than Zacharias now speaks up and praises the Lord. Verse 64, At once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. The moment he had opportunity to speak. Some point one. David responded to his divine discipline with worship. I'm giving you other examples, not just Zechariah. Zechariah is not alone in this. David responded to his divine discipline with worship. Do you remember that? It wasn't that long ago when we did the Life of David series, 2 Samuel 12. Remember when uh, the Lord struck that child, the, the child of, uh, of adultery? Struck the child and David uh, fasted and he wept. From this whole time, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day. See, how long do you pray over issues? <laughs> How long am I willing to fast and weep and pray and wrestle with the Lord and, and seek His face? Am I going to go a whole seven days or do I just pray once and when it doesn't happen I just give up and say, oh, well, prayer doesn't work? Or do I wrestle with the angel and not let go until I receive the blessing? And uh, it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. All right? Beyond the fact that he's a prophet, and it's hard to hide things from a prophet, he, uh, he saw the servants all whispering and chit-chatting, and he you know, figured out what was going on. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, came into the house of the Lord, and worshipped. Isn't that amazing? Immediate response to the conclusion of the testing, in the aftermath of the divine discipline, having lost this child, goes into the house of the Lord and worships. Then he has the opportunity to teach Bible class. Because it's not only his responsibility to worship, but it's also his responsibility to teach others what's going on. Because someday they may be in a circumstance where they're going to have to respond to divine discipline. So his servants were bamboozled. I don't think the word bamboozled actually occurs in verse 21. But the servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me. Hanan. That the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 
I will go to him, but he will not return to me. He has an opportunity to teach Bible class to his servants. And by the way, that's one of the greatest verses there for the age of accountability. I shall go to him. That child is a seven-year-old infant. Obviously, never heard the gospel. Obviously, did not place his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it was presently with the Lord. And David knew that upon his physical death, that he also was going to go be with this child together with the Lord. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. We have other examples of this. Nebuchadnezzar responded to his divine discipline with worship. There's another example in David, too. Um, if I can find it, uh, Psalm 51, I think, is uh, one. And then I think there's another one. It might be Psalm 68. Sixty-eight may not be correct, but I know Psalm fifty-one is. I want you to see something here in Psalm fifty-one. He's confessing. It says, "For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba." All right. In our English text, that's a, a prescript, and then we get verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God. In the Hebrew text, that is verse 1, and then verse 2 is, Be gracious to me, O God. Alright? This is his psalm of repentance. And it's where he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. And uh, as he's confessing this sin, he knows he's going to be cleansed, because when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says here in verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We sang that hymn Sunday morning, whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. See, divine discipline, bones broken. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's one thing to be cleansed, but we also have to get back to the program of the Word of God. I mean, it doesn't do us any good if we simply confess and then don't uh, don't follow through as the rebound and follow through. We've got to get under teaching. We've got to get into uh, the, the process of the Word where the Word renews our thinking. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then, and what I'm headed for here is in verse 13. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David knows that being restored to fellowship, being forgiven of his sins, coming through on the other side of divine discipline is his opportunity to not only worship himself personally, but to become a teacher, to correct others, to come along, as it says here, teaching transgressors your ways and sinners converted to you. As an opportunity for him to step forward and and, and uh, minister the word of God to other young men to say, hey, don't do this. <laughs> Learn from my failures. But see, to do that, you have to be willing to admit that you have faults. <laughs> Oops. You have to... Uh, uh, I think a lot of believers just don't want to... Don't want to... Uh, let other people know that, that they've ever sinned before in their lives. And, and you know, that uh, 
we've got to keep this top secret and classified and locked away in a government vault somewhere. Even if I'm seeing my fellow believers struggle down that same path. See, where, where is love? Does love come along and does love not want to come along and say, hey, don't go down that road. I've been there. Or does pride say, I don't want to tell you that I've been there. <laughs> I'm going to keep this secret to myself. David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. See, there's the opportunity there for further service. Nebuchadnezzar is the second example, as I'm out of time here in Daniel 4, 34 through 37. And uh, you can look that up on your own. And in point three, every believer can respond in such a way, according to Hebrews 12:11. All discipline seems for the moment not to be joyful. But afterward, to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's not a lot of fun to be under divine discipline. But when it's all said and done, when it's over with, when it's accomplished its result, you're now useful. Useful in ways that you were not before. So that's Hebrews 12.11. I'll let you look that up on your own as well. Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for the truth of your word. Thankful for the opportunity we have one more time to come together and assemble. This may be our final time. We may not even have this evening, Father. You can send your son back at any moment. We might hear the trumpet. We may be transformed to the twinkling of an eye, casting off this, imper- this perishable and putting on the imperishable. Father, we, uh, we long for that. We desire for that. We say we are in agreement with the prayer that has been spoken and say, Amen, even so come Lord Jesus. We proclaim day by day the joyous Maranatha. But Father, we also recognize that you are patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And day by day, as your patience manifests itself, we recognize that today is one more day to seek and to save the lost, one more day to grow in the grace and knowledge, one more day to lay up treasures in heaven, one more day to accumulate crowns that are to be cast at his feet. And Father, we know that he is worthy of so much more than we've done at this point. And so, Father, we can simply thank you for one more day to accumulate just a little bit more. Thank you, Father, now in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.